thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, I welcome you to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you with me. And today, as I promised last week, we're going to look at how the God of the Bible provides an answer to the question, the ancient question, of the one and the many that pops up in our society all the time. Now, for those of you who've maybe not been able to listen to the previous podcast or need a little refresher, the ancient question of the one and the many is simply this. Which is more ultimate, more essential, or the controlling interpretive principle, unity, or is it the many? Individuality, for example. So we've talked about that again in the context, for instance, of COVID. What is really the controlling principle that's more ultimate, most important, uh, that should dictate the outcome, the needs of society to be protected, or the needs of the individual and uh, the individual's liberty? And we talked about that last week, particularly in connection with the United States Supreme Court and its inability to come to some resolution of what it means to be married. What is a marriage? The Supreme Court can't figure out the question of the one and the many with respect to the issue of marriage. Now, you may say, well, I, I don't understand what you're talking about, the issue of the one and the many in regard to marriage. So, so let me just tell you how this question of the one and the many pertains to the issue of marriage. Then we're going to briefly review what the Supreme Court said, and then we're going to look at how God solves this problem of the one and the many in a beautifully harmonious way that reflects the beauty of the triune God. So here's the, the point about marriage. Does marriage have a reality which makes its conditions mandatory regardless of the conditions of the husband and wife? In other words, is there something that's true about marriage, that when a man and a woman come together and make this commitment of fidelity, each to the other, with respect to each other and with respect to all other things, that fidelity is a controlling principle. It says, I'm as the husband just can't go off and do whatever I want to do, or as the wife, I can go off and do whatever I want to do. Or are the persons in the marriage the ones who take priority? And their wishes uh, control over the idea of marriage as a whole. So the point here would be, well, I'm not in love anymore, or she burned the toast one too many times, or he didn't put the toilet seat down uh, enough times that I'm, I'm now leaving, right? There's, there's nothing about marriage that would constrain my individual actions. So the Supreme Court we talked about last week has grappled with this for literally 50 years, beginning in 1965 with the case of Griswold versus Connecticut to its decision about same-sex marriage in Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. 
And all during that period, the, the Supreme Court can't seem to figure out what marriage was. In Griswold in 1965, um, the court said marriage is something greater than two people. It's a, a way of life, not the cause of a way of life. So in other words, it's something that exists. It doesn't create something. It is something. Uh, then in 1976, a short, uh, what, 11 years later, the court said, well, actually, marriage is just an association of two individuals, each with a separate intellectual and emotional makeup, and so the wife can abort the child belonging to her and her husband without the husband's consent or knowledge. You see, so we've, we've gone from this idea that there's something about marriage and in Griswold, the court said, because there's something really true about marriage, you just can't have the civil government sticking its nose within that jurisdictional authority very far to 11 years later saying, ah, it's just two people. And there is no real thing that limits their individuality having come together. Now, in 2015, in Obergefell, we said, well, this is funny. They, they now trying to still figure out this thing of what marriage is. And they're the case was about whether marriage was even a man and a woman. And the court said, essentially, there is no reality to marriage. So they're, they're, they're staying consistent with this idea. It's just an association of two people. And, but it only has such meaning now as two people give it. So, so there's your priority of individuals. The autonomous individuals come together to decide for themselves what marriage is. They create marriage. Now, the question is going to be at some point, well, why can't three or four people autonomously decide what they think marriage is? And the state will now have to recognize that. But we'll come back to that some other time. But here's, here's the problem the court faced. Okay, we've said there's no real reality to it. It's just what two people say they are. But how do we make it look comparable to what we've always known as the male-female marriage formulation so that we can say, ah, there's no difference between these two things. So it's wrong for you to not let two men or two women marry the same as you would a man and a woman. And so here's what the court said, that marriage is a dynamic that allows two people to find a life that could not be found alone, for a marriage becomes greater than just the two persons. Oh, so now we're back to the idea in 1965 that marriage is this sort of real thing. Uh, it's greater than the sum of its parts, but it's made up and interpreted by the individuals in their own individual autonomous sort of way. <clears throat> now, the question you would need to ask then is, well, okay, but what makes marriage something greater than the two persons? Now, the Christians would say, it's because God has formed it, established a law that orders the nature of that relationship, and that the relationship is grounded in this promise of mutual fidelity and so on and so forth. You know, we, what are we going to do here? So this is what, to avoid the question of God, the ordering of God, of marriage in male and female to some purpose that God would intend, this is what the court said. This would be funny if it weren't actually in the Supreme Court opinion. Don't think I'm making this up, so I'm going to quote it. Marriage responds to, okay, here we go. This is what marriage responds to. The universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. 
Now, did you understand from the Bible that that's why God created marriage? Now, I don't want to sound mean here, but, you know, if you don't want to wake up and find there's nothing there, you can have a dog sleep on your bed, right? Uh, you can just have a friend sleep on your bed. You can play the radio lightly in the background. There are all kinds of things you can do so that when you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't feel so alone. That can't be the reason that something becomes a marriage. Marriage isn't responding to that. Lots of things could respond to that. Two, two elderly sisters or, or brothers could live together, and that would respond to that, but we wouldn't call it a marriage. So the court then goes on and says, next sentence, it offers the hope of companionship and understanding and assurance that while both still live, there will be someone to care for the other. So it's strictly a mutual aid society. Now, I don't know how it is with that understanding of what marriage is and what it corresponds to and the need that it's meeting that will necessarily limit marriage to two people other than that's, well, just history and tradition. But the problem with the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell is history and tradition didn't matter there. So they're going to have a hard time explaining why history and tradition regarding two is now important, but history and tradition regarding male and female wasn't important. You see, when you begin to try to reinterpret reality to suit your own desires rather than interpret them according to how God intended them to be interpreted, you have to reinterpret all the facts. And then you find yourself in disunity and disharmony because things don't fit together right. You see, the court was trying to, to come up with with individuality, but yet finding in a unity, but it will now have no basis upon which to uh, say polygamy and polyandry are not also constitutionally protected, right? How do we do it? Without backtracking again. So see, this question of unity and diversity is a very practical thing, and particularly in the context of marriage. Now, I want to talk in the rest of today's episode about how the God of the Bible solves these problems without this tension and conflict. Only in the belief in two Christian doctrines, and you have to hold them both, not the one or the other, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the Trinity, is there a resolution to this everywhere appearing tension between one and unity being more ultimate and fundamental and controlling, or the many, the individual versus society, the husband versus the wife, the marital unity, and so on and so forth, okay? You have to hold them both. Now, I want you to just stop for a moment. We live in a very confused culture where many Christians are struggling with this question of unity and diversity and, and human dignity and human rights and and um, racism and um, sexism and, and all this sort of stuff. How often have you had explicated to you with any fullness the doctrine of creation? How often have you had the doctrine of the Trinity explicated for you at church and the implications of it and the importance of it explained? Now, if you've been in that church, wow, that's great. But, you know, 
I grew up in churches, literally, from the nursery up. Never heard it talked about. Never heard it explained. Maybe I was just in bad churches, but they were all considered evangelical. They would have all been considered Bible-believing churches. They would have all been conservative churches, but that just wasn't important. And that's why I continue to say that the Christian gospel, the message that's preached today, the way Christianity is presented today has no solution to the problems that we face because we don't know anything about the doctrines that actually provide solutions to the problems we face. So, here is what we need to understand about these two doctrines. Now, you could take a whole class at seminary on this, and I can't do it in one podcast, but but let me touch on a few of the important things that we need to appreciate. The doctrine of creation means that everything has a purpose and a function and a law of its being that is given by God for the purposes of God to glorify God. Now that's a, a lot there, but let me let me put it this way from a book on God and uh, creation by Herman Bobney, who lived in the late 1800s and the 1900s. He said, everything was created with a nature of its own and rests in ordinances established by God. Sun, moon, stars have their own unique tasks. Plants, animals, and humans are distinct in nature. There is the most profuse diversity And yet in that diversity, there is also a superlative kind of unity. The foundation of both diversity and unity is in God, who is one in essence and three in persons with distinct functions. The Father did not take on human flesh. The Holy Spirit did not take on human flesh. That did not make Jesus, therefore, something better than, ontologically, more God than the Father or the Holy Spirit, and vice versa, and all of those things. There is a unity and a diversity, a unity and a many, a unity and a distinctiveness within, you could say, God himself. So he creates a universe that reflects that. He says that, therefore, God continually upholds them in their distinctive natures, guides and governs them in keeping with their own uncreated energies and law towards his purposes. So ultimately all this stuff with transgenderism and all those things must fail because they, they work contrary to the very distinctive nature of the thing that's there that God will not allow to be obliterated. He will not allow his creation to be destroyed. So he goes on and he says, Therefore we have to understand that all the parts are connected with each other and influence each other reciprocally. Heaven and earth, man and animal, soul and body, truth and life, art and science, religion and morality, state and church, family and society and so on, though all are distinct, are not separated. There's a wide range of connections between them, an organic or if you will, an ethical bond, holds them all together. Now that is so important. 
a major leading multinational Christian organization working in the area of law and government said to me the other day, their leader said, I will trade off gay marriage and not fight against gay marriage to preserve an interpretation of the Constitution that I've fought for for years that establishes a basis for parental rights. And I thought, oh, my poor brother, your theology does not, uh, uh, and doctrine of creation does not allow you to see that God's creation cannot be pulled apart and you can, you can pull marriage out and preserve the parent-child relationship because the parent-child relationship was intended by God to be derived from and flow from the husband and wife relationship. Now that's a leading Christian organization. The same one who was making those arguments about life that we should protect life because babies can hiccup and move around and feel pain. No, they're human beings, that's why we protect them. If we didn't know they hiccuped or, or, or they didn't start moving till maybe four months into the pregnancy, would that mean, oh, oh, oh we can kill those because they're not hiccuping and moving around? Well, they can't feel pain yet. You see what they undermine, the very principle that they say they stand for, that life is precious and comes from God. No, it depends on whether you can hiccup and move around and feel pain. Sorry to sound so exercised, but this is what I see all the time within the circles that I run in law and government, and that's why I continue to say the Christian gospel as it is presented and practiced has no answer to the problems of today. None. Zip. Zero. Nada. Nine. I think that's all the languages I know from TV shows. I'm sorry if you hear my glasses clicking in the background. I'm waving them around. I guess I'm doing my Rush Limbaugh thing, right? But do you see the beauty of that? Do you see that, that God can't allow all these things to be destroyed? Now, now here's, here's the beauty of it. All of these things were created by God in such a way that all working together, they reveal the glory of God. Now, this is something very important, and I just put it in the new book that I'm releasing that uh, is uh, probably be out th this week or next week. It's called The Naked Court. I'd encourage you to read it. It's not very long, about 60 pages. But I said this, every part of creation must reflect the glory of God. Why must that be true? In other words, let me say it another way. Every point of creation must be revelatory regarding God. It must reveal something about God. Why is that the case? Because if it's not the case, then the heavens do not declare the glory of God. And Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1 that the creation is such that if you were not so fallen in your thinking, in your heart, in your affections, you would see the glory of God everywhere. It would be plain. It would be evident. It would be clear. And that's why nobody has an excuse. You should all be able to see what is necessary to know the fundamentals of God, not, not how to be reconciled to God. But if there was some part of the universe that did not reveal the glory of God, then what would we do? We would point to that thing, and we would run to that part of the universe that doesn't display the glory of God, and we'd say, see, see right here, I don't see the glory of God. You did not make your case, God. Therefore, I am not culpable. You see what we would do? 
Now, what does one, Psalm 139 say? He says, if I go to heaven or I go to hell, I can't get away from God. If I go to the furthest parts of the universe, God's going to be there. Now, now he's actually omnipresent because God's incorporeal, and, and, he, and he's a spirit, and he doesn't have a body. But in every place we would see something of God. So let me continue to read on here. This is just so wonderful to me. Uh, John Calvin wrote this, There is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of God's glory. There's an, another author that's uh, quoted in this book by Bobek, and what he says here is good. Nothing in the whole world is more excellent, more noble, more beautiful, more useful, and more divine than the diversity of its many elements. The distinction in that order in which one is more noble than another, one depends on another, one is subject to another, and one receives obedience from another. Hence comes the adornment, beauty, and excellence of the whole world. Thence arises its many uses, usefulness, and benefits for us. Hence the very goodness, glory, wisdom, and power of God shines forth and is revealed more brilliantly. And for all of them, the world is a theater, a splendidly clear mirror of his divine glory. You see, there's a unity and a diversity and a harmony where the rock is not unvaluable and unnecessary, though, you know, you'd certainly say a human being would be more important than a rock. But, you know, if I want to build a road or build a wall, or build a bridge. A, a rock is a really, really great thing. But, but it has certain properties. And, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to have rock soup or eat a rock. No, that's wonderful. We ought to be able to see God everywhere. And we could if our thinking and our minds had not been so affected by the fall, by the sin of the first Adam, whose seed we are. Now, I want to turn to something else. Here's another statement from Bobbick. I think this is, again, so beautiful. God himself, the entire deity, is the archetype of man. And one of the things that caught my attention a few years ago was in Romans, it refers to Adam, who was a type of Christ. See, my own evolutionary thinking was God created Adam, then he creates Christ, and there we go. But he says, no, 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 no. He said, that's, that's, that's not true. You see, Christ was the presupposition for the creation of man, and Adam was created such that he could be redeemed by the second person of the Trinity being able to take on a human nature. Isn't that a beautiful thought? We were created so that we could be recreated. We were created so that the eternal counsels and plans of God, for the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to take on our nature and it would be suitable and compatible for him. As long as it wasn't fallen and didn't fall. And he did it. He did it, and he didn't fall. And there's our hope that we can be 
restored to the image of God with which we've been created. Now the last little thing today, and this to me is, is so good. Oh, I wish our friends who struggle with questions of race and ethnicity could hear this and their hearts could believe it and receive it. But Bobbitt continues, not the man alone, nor the man and woman together, but only the whole of humanity is the fully developed image of God, his children, his offspring. The image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. It can only be somewhat unfolded. I love that idea. It can only somewhat be unfolded in its depth and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. See what God was saying? He said, I have made you in my image. I have taken Eve from you, Adam, so that ontologically in your essence there is a unity. You're not more important. She's not less important. She's not more important. You're not less important. And in fact, man will come from woman. There's a wonderful unity, but there's a distinction there of complementariness. And then I'm going to bring those two distinctions together in a thing called marriage. And by your procreation, you'll create more diversity that will be in the unity of a family. But I want you all to now go fill the whole earth. Because only then is, is, is the totality of the beauty of the image of God and the knowledge of the image of God in seeing that throughout the whole earth. And he goes on and says, just as the cosmos is a unity and receives its head and master in humankind. You see, man was the, was the final piece of the creation, bringing together the spiritual uh, of the angels and the material of the earth together in one person, suitable for the Son, who is a spirit incorporeal to take on human nature. He said, just as the cosmos is the unity and receives its head and master in humankind, just as the traces of God scattered throughout the entire world are bundled and raised up into the image of God in humankind, so also that humanity, us, in turn, is to be conceived as an organism that precisely as such is finally the only fully developed image of God not as a heap of souls on a tract of land, not as a loose aggregate of individuals, but having been created out of one blood as one household and one family, humanity is the image and likeness of God and our head to whom we're joined so that there is a unity is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The second Adam the last man. There'll never need to be another head of the human race. And we have one who joins us to God, the Father, the Son, through the Holy Spirit. And isn't that just a beautiful thing? Don't you wish the whole world could hear that? And yet, in the church, by and large, where I've been over 60 years, 
don't really talk about that. We really kind of come up with sort of humanistic things. Well, we all came out of Adam and Eve, you know. There's, there's one, and and that's true. But, but, but that came out of who God is. That's why the passages of Scripture are always saying, get to know who God is. Increasing your knowledge of God. Increasing your knowledge of God. Increasing your knowledge of God, the Father and the Son, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say that so you won't be deceived by the silly stuff that you'll hear around you and even out of some pulpits and even Christian organizations that say we shouldn't kill you because you can hiccup and move around and feel pain. Do not be taken captive by everything that sticks the word Christian on the name of its organization or says they believe in the Bible and all that stuff because they may believe those things but they do not allow them to work down and out and through and into what they actually do and the way they go about doing it. And God forgive me for the times that I may have done that here. I do not want to do that at the Family Action Council of Tennessee. We want to bear witness to the God we believe in and why that God is the solution to all the problems. And if legislators don't want to acknowledge that or run away from it or are scared of it or feel too religious, then they will be accountable to God, but not me for failing to bear witness to them. Well, I've been kind of wound up today, I guess. But I hope you'll think about, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you've gained something from it, sharing it with your friends. Because I suspect this is not the kind of thing that you just hear every day. You're certainly not going to hear it on the EBI network or IBE or whatever it is. You're not going to hear it on Sean Hannity and all that. You can hear about all the problems of the world today, and you can hear about how stupid all the answers are. But we need solutions that are real, that are grounded in an ultimate reality. And that is God, and He is the principle by which we interpret all things. And we're going to pick back up on that idea next week and look at what that means, how the humanists would interpret things, and how those produce radically different ways of looking at life. So I hope you'll join me next week here at God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.